Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Anika, Antonia and Amina to talk about electric cars and offer our points of view on whether they really are good for the environment and for humanity. The UK government plans to ban the sale of cars uh, that use combustion engines by 2030. In our previous episode, Antonia gave a really nice description of how the combustion engine works and explained that they produce greenhouse gases such as CO2 and nitrous oxides, as well as particles of soot and so contribute to climate change and reduce air quality. Uh, so check that episode out if you've not already listened to it. And to carry on that conversation, Antonia, from your background in energy and sustainability, what can you tell us about trends in electric car ownership? So I don't know about you, Laura, but have you noticed how many more electric car chargers there are? So you get to thinking how many cars are actually on the road. So there's about 33 million on the road and 3% of those are electric, hybrid or alternative fuels. So that's just about a million. That's grown quite a lot since 2015. It's gone up by four times. So back then it was just over a quarter of a million. Clearly, there are a lot more drivers using alternative lower emission cars. It sounds like electric cars are on the rise. I've definitely noticed that. I'm seeing on my road quite a few people have those ports in their walls to plug in electric cars. And I, I definitely almost got run over by one the other day because it didn't make any noise whatsoever compared to other cars that are out and about. So definitely noticing more and more electric cars on the streets. I've even seen them in car parks. So like multi-story car parks, they've got a few aisles dedicated towards it. So it's definitely on the rise. That's interesting. So I live in quite a rural location and I can think of one electric charging station near us. I know one person that owns a Tesla, which I call a milk flow. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a taxi company near me that runs electric cars, but it's a bit of a challenge in rural areas where you can do an awful lot of miles and the range isn't quite there yet. That's what worries me about electric cars a little bit. We're doing quite a long drive over a few mountain passes. What if we get stuck? How are we meant to charge it up? Yeah, I mean, even in cities, in, in rural areas, obviously that's a disaster. But I also think that's an issue that people need to be thinking about in cities because where are you putting all these charges? Like if you're living in an apartment, if you're in a street that has no parking, like terrace houses is like really common in Manchester. If you have like a detached house with a car parking space, I think it's pretty straightforward to, you know, install these charging points. But if you're on these streets where you, you're just going to have wires all over the road to plug in your cars, I think people need to be looking at that as well. Well, I suppose hybrids are, are, are best for that. Then you get the best of both worlds. When you can do the electric, you do the electric. And when not, you've got backup. Yeah, it makes you wonder, though, if there's been that fourfold increase in electric car ownership or alternative fueled car ownership in the last five years. Is that a trend that's going to continue sort of roughly doubling every year? Or is it going to increase dramatically and suddenly 90% of the nation will be driving electric cars? I think unless there's, there's going to be a government incentive involved in it, I don't think it's going to increase that much like rapidly i think it is on the upward trend and i think it probably will keep going that way but like a massive overnight increase i don't think it will happen unless the government gets involved in it and gives people incentives to go electric i think it will also have to 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 meet the regulation and the legislation that's coming through but also i think there's a supply issue so the transistor shortage that we've got has kind of impacted the car market because cars are so advanced they need mini computers in there to actually do all the controls and displays so will will we even be able to meet the demand actually i think is is the other problem right now and develop that infrastructure in time because i don't know about you but 
the roads near my house are atrocious. So if they can't even fix the roads after so many years, will they be putting all of these kind of infrastructure necessities for electric cars in place in what, 19 years? Is it like 2030, they want to stop selling combustible cars. So that means that they need to have that infrastructure in place quite rapidly. And it seems quite a big project to have charging ports on every street corner, basically. I've known you for 10 years and in 10 years, your road has gradually just gotten worse and not better. So, you know. (laughs) They don't fix the roads. And when they do, they fix about a two metre stretch. And even that is not fixed properly. So I'm waiting with bated breath to see what they, they do with the electric car infrastructure that they need to develop. So has that stopped you from driving Anika? I don't have a license to be fair. So I've never driven just because I've never had the need to drive. I don't think I can blame the state of my roads on that. I think that's just more me being me. But I think they're good in a way, electric cars, because they stop the emissions of the CO2 and of the NOx in our cities. So at least in cities where they're very densely populated and people are using traditional fuel burning cars, that can at least improve the air quality for the people living in the cities, which I think is only a good thing. You can argue whether it's displacing it to other places where the the power stations are and and things like that, or the fuel that they need to extract the the resources for the cars themselves. You know, are we just offsetting it somewhere else and putting our problems in for somewhere else is another question. But at least for major cities, I think that's a good thing. But I also think they need to be investing a lot more and having better public transport and things like that, that people can use. More accessible for everyone. Definitely. And affordable. Yeah. I'd agree with that. I'll tell you something that surprised me when I was doing some research for this episode. Uh, I started to wonder when electric cars were first on the UK market. They've only really become trendy in the last few years. I think Antonia's stats pointed that out. And it sounds like Tesla introduced their £87,000 car back in 2008, which sounds astronomical to me. Even now, back then, it would have been even more expensive. And then the Nissan Leaf came uh, not long after that and was a lot more affordable and that paved the way for other electric cars. But it's actually, it's not new technology. I did not know this. No one's really pinned down exactly when the electric car was first produced, but it seems to have come from a London-based inventor in 1884. What? 1884? <laughs> it's a long, long time ago, right? And we think of it as a modern technology. It's only just becoming trendy, but there was actually a bit of a, a boom for it in 1900s, I think. About a third of the cars in the USA were electric. Wow. So why did we stick with electric cars back then? Why, why did we go to petrol, diesel? Well, apparently they were mostly in cities and they only had a, a range of in miles sort of in the teens, so 15-ish miles and a top speed of about 15-ish mile an hour as well. Uh, and I can cycle faster than that and further than that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not a pro cyclist either. So like the average cyclist can outstrip a car. And obviously road infrastructure was expanding and then Henry Ford came on the scene and figured out a way to manufacture combustion cars more effectively. And people wanted to get around so the more powerful combustion engine then just became the thing sounds like electric vehicles have always been there in some capacity for example the milk float that i mentioned um it's not just teslas have they always been electric i think so the ones on my streets definitely were yeah no i never knew that thing is they can creep around quietly early in the morning and not wake people up that distinctive kind of like sound you know you know that like from the hum kind of thing whoosh there you go having just spent the last few minutes talking about trends in electric car use and ownership is increasing and all the infrastructure we may need to facilitate that they're really not new they're really old it'll probably tie in with how publicity goes and how the promotion of a certain thing goes like in the past it's not had that promotion so even though that technology has been there and it's been accessible it's not had that promotion so therefore it's not been pushed It just goes back to bringing the awareness for everyone. 
I think was more a, a drive upon drive to to travel further, which was why they they fell out of favour because people wanted to go their own places. They didn't want to sit on public transport. Around that time, that must have been when there were electrified trams as well. And that could have been good to get around the city. But then cars became so fashionable. You could have your own mobility, independence. Like Amina said, it's kind of got that advertising push. But I think we are traveling more as well. The world is getting smaller because we are able to travel further. That's very true. I guess it's not just about how the technology develops. It's how society develops as well and what society wants out of the things around them. Mm. But right now we're pushing, oh, um, zero carbon. So right now we're saying, oh, well, you know, going with electric cars, it, it produces less CO2 gases and therefore it's it's more environmentally friendly. And that's the side of the coin that we're being shown. But that's not entirely true because the whole process of lithium extraction is is completely not environmentally friendly. And then you also have the issue of once you are done with your lithium batteries, what to do with them? We don't have a sustainable way of recycling our lithium. It is a finite source. And they're essentially just sort of ticking time bombs, to be honest, because we don't really know how to extract the lithium out of them in a a correct manner. There's talks of using nuclear decommissioning robotics to help with the decommissioning of the lithium batteries because they're explosives. And I don't know how many people know about that. Everyone knows about electric cars coming onto the market and them being more environmentally friendly. But I, I, I don't think there's enough promotion around the, the other side of, of, of this conversation, the whole life cycle of the lithium batteries. It's not discussed and it, it's a very big topic. Uh, I remember hearing stories about if people were charging their mobile phone, which obviously uses a lithium ion battery as well, yeah. and they were sort of doing it near the bed or it kind of got tangled up in the covers of bed sheets being set on fire really hmm. i will not be charging my bed and uh, charging my bed charging my phone on my bed from now on which i regularly do i'm quite worried you could try and charge a bed yeah <laughs> Something will work. yeah apparently you shouldn't even do it like on on carpet and stuff you should do it like on hard surfaces hard non-flammable ones I guess yeah but I mean the amount of times that I've left mine somewhere I shouldn't when it was charging and it's been fine I do wonder how much of a risk it is and how much technology's improved since those stories because I thought I must have read those about five years ago but I read that's also how they recycle the lithium is that they either burn it or like they don't burn the lithium but they burn the batteries to try and extract the lithium or, or use that really harsh chemicals it's very energy intensive to to actually produce the lithium it's not environmentally friendly so the the vast majority of lithium that's produced they use um the the salt planes to produce it and it's really cost effective like it's really cheap for them to use it they use the salt flat it takes about 12 to 18 months to actually be able to extract the lithium from those places because they'll just move it from pool to pool to pool but it uses about 500,000 gallons to produce one ton of lithium what's that 5,000 gallons of water 5,000 gallons of water to be able to produce one ton of lithium. The Tesla batteries, they kind of say on average, it's about 12 kilograms of lithium per battery. So if you think of it that way, it's depriving places of water that they need to be able to get on with their day-to-day things, to be able to grow their crops, to be able to have that source of income. It's depriving those areas of their sort of means. So it's not exactly fair to say, okay, well, you've got lithium, so we're going to extract the lithium from you and whatever you're doing with your life, put that on pause. Also, there's really toxic chemicals which are being released into the water system then by all of this. 
There's been research in America, which has said where the lithium extraction plants are, up to 150 kilometers away, they can still detect the, the chemicals from the, the plant. So it it has a widespread effect on the local area. Um, is lithium extraction just in America or is it elsewhere on the globe? It's elsewhere. So um, there are three main areas where it happens. So I know it happens in Chile. I think Peru as well, maybe. I, I know it's just generally like the Atacama Desert. So are they places where the lithium is just easiest to get to? You know, a little bit like there was the whole controversy around fracking a few years ago that we could find all this difficult to get to gas in the UK that we could use for fuel. And everyone was against that because it didn't seem really feasible. It was a bit dangerous. Are there other lithium deposits that we could get to, but they might be too difficult? We have some in Cornwall, not a lot. I think the main reason why there's a lot of focus on these three countries or that area is because they have an abundance of lithium, whereas there are other places where there are deposits of lithium. They're very hard to extract, but um, it's not abundant and therefore the infrastructure that needs to go into place to be able to uh, extract it, it's not economical. And this is the other thing. These countries perhaps don't have that much regulation in place. Congo was also another one, I think, where there's lithium extractions and they use child labor there. So there's not there's not like a proper regulation in place where um, it can be done in a controlled manner. Whereas if it's somewhere in Europe, there will be stringent rules and regulations around it. So the extraction process will be a lot more expensive in these parts. I think that's also a bit of a cultural discussion, isn't it? Developed countries with the developed safety measures and labour laws and all that have had the privilege to develop unconstrained with fossil fuels. And so they just have been technologically developing that way. And so they've had to find these safety measures, whereas in these countries, they are going to be a bit more manual um, because they've not got that infrastructure yet. So as the developed countries are decarbonizing faster, they're shifting a burden onto probably less developed countries that have all the resources and they're offshoring their carbon emissions and also the responsibility. So mining happening in Chile, in Democratic Republic Congo, they are not in the same level of economic wealth. So when you talk about offshoring carbon emissions, you mean that like, the UK calculates the carbon emissions from our nation based on what we do on our own island and anything else that we buy in. So a resource from elsewhere, we don't tend to count that in the nation's own emissions. I think it gets quite difficult, really. If, you, if you're able to track the actual demand and where it came from, you know, having that transparent supply chain, it would be great. But at the moment, I don't think we're there yet. So we kind of have to look territorially, what are our emissions within the land? Certain things that are more global, like aviation, they have their own sort of category of emissions. And they, they're, they're a fake country, like Bitcoin mining is also like its own little nation in terms of the league table of carbon emissions or greenhouse gas emissions. If we're having all of these really quite urgent, really near-term targets that we have to meet, then the demand for these kind of resources is just going to keep increasing as the demand for electric cars, for example, increases. So one fact I read, which was really shocking from the International Energy Agency, they said that the demand for lithium would increase 42 times by 2040 compared to 2020. And I think, yeah, we mentioned Chile, but they're also, I think, scoping out Portugal and the Western US, I think, for, for lithium mining as well. There's going to be a lot of pushback from the existing communities in Chile, but also those communities in, in Portugal and, and um, the US as well. Uh, similar to fracking, when we had that pushed here, will those communities want that? 
As a person who is involved with the nuclear industry, I find it completely bizarre how they are able to promote something without going through its whole life cycle. So with a nuclear plant, we have to, from the very get-go, we have our safety reports for pre-commissioning and pre-construction and all the way through down to decommissioning. We know where our waste is going to go, how it's going to be dealt with, the whole lot from, from the initial investment. Everything is planned out. And if everything is not planned out, you don't get the thumbs up and you can't, you can't go. Whereas it almost seems as if the governments have started to back electric cars without actually going through the whole process and saying, okay, well, where is the lithium coming from? Is it sustainable? What are we going to do with these lithium batteries once they are out of use? How are we going to recycle it? It doesn't seem like the whole thing has been thought through. It's like, okay, yes, this is something that's good. It's zero carbon. We can latch onto this. Let's promote this. And then afterwards, let's just sort of like as an afterthought, all of this seems to be coming through, which to me, it's a bizarre concept. It's it's really good that the nuclear industry has done that and also for for a young industry relatively to other things it's done really well and I think maybe that's something that that needs to be picked up on is developing that fuller picture I know that there are some companies that are looking into how they're going to extract the lithium afterwards you can have different ways of using the lithium so it's not just lithium as a metal but it could be a lithium compound but what they find is companies are so secretive about what they put in their batteries and how they make it that if you just had a lot of lithium batteries they could be a mixed chemistry when i say battery chemistry you know there's the cathode and anode in redox <laughs> cycles should point out that none of us are chemists in this team so uh we tend to be a bit fast and loose with some of our chemistry terms <laughs> thank you thanks so it's so also electrolyte let's just throw that word out there electrolyte they also exist sometimes they contain lithium like a hexafluorophosphate, which is difficult to recycle because how do you get all the bits out? You've got fluoro, the, the fluorine, phosphate, all really explosive, dangerous stuff. So like Amina says, if there was a, a better plan on if we were going to make a really energy efficient battery, well, energy dense battery, we also need to think what are the consequences afterwards. I know there's a lot of government investment into battery technologies, the Faraday Fund, which is just over £300 million to be invested in figuring out, I guess, how to make batteries more efficient and how to recycle them efficiently as well, and maybe use other resources. I have a statistic from a website called spectrum.ee.org that says that battery recycling isn't actually all that profitable. And there are about 180 kilotons of lithium-ion batteries available for recycling in 2019, but just over half were recycled. And that most of those plants are in China and South Korea. So it's not even something we're doing a lot in Europe at the minute, it sounds like, which I think is what you were saying before, isn't it? There's a lot of investment into it. There's also the difference between putting it through the recycling process and how much you actually recover of the minerals you want out of it. So if you take like the lithium manganese oxide mix, that's very cheap because it's not using cobalt, except you can't actually recover the lithium from it because of the way they built it. Whereas with lithium cobalt, you can, but then the difficulty comes with, with the way you're sourcing your cobalt. It, it's one of those, it's one of those problems that you just kind of do we have to solve this problem? Do we have to go down the battery route is, is the question. There's so much complexity. There's so much like commercially sensitive as well that can we even get companies to sort of 
open up that information or do we have to extend the producer's responsibility? Yeah, I think I'd quite like it if I could just send my battery back to the place that I got it from and they could deal with it rather than me sitting there. I, I pretty much have loads of old mobile phones piling up in this house because I'm not entirely sure the best place to take them to recycle them and uh, to do it responsibly and protect whatever data may be on there because I haven't wiped the memory correctly. I think that is the concept. I think car companies are going to build their own recycling plant of some sort and um, how they go about it and stuff. I, I don't think it's identified, but VW, they produce not only their own engines, but Audis and Skodas and, you know, whatever falls under their umbrella, all of them are supposed to go to their recycling plant. So I think the concept is that the producers will take responsibility for them. But I don't know how actually, like how practical that actually is and how much they will actually be able to do. And also that still doesn't address the sourcing issue. I think it's tough for the people living in those areas in the like salt flats and things like that, whether it's Chile, Bolivia, Argentina. I think in some way if they, they all come together, which I think they do have like a collective. I think it's like plurinational observatory of Andean Andean, I don't know how to say that, salt salt flats. And they're kind of like environmental and indigenous activists who are working in, in those lithium producing countries. They are also suffering from climate change. They're suffering probably even worse than, you know, we are over here. I think they have a lot of lithium, but they have a lot of, you know, other, other scientific value, cultural things, other environmental values as well there. And if they came together and just said no and managed to stop people from extracting then we'd have no choice than to recycle. And maybe that's what's needed. And I know it's not easy for people just to say no. I'm sure they're already saying no, but big, powerful corporations obviously have power over, you know, these people. So I don't think it's that easy, but maybe if these communities are able to stand up and maybe other people from outside those communities stand up with them to kind of keep away the big extractors, maybe that would force the other companies to to start recycling more. Yeah, I guess we saw in the UK some of that um, back in sort of the 80s when uh, the coal miners went on strike, so the coal for electricity production. Um, and there were sort of rolling brownouts across the UK that had to be dealt with. And like, a whole mining communities are built up around those mines, right? And uh, they suddenly didn't exist anymore because they didn't have a job and there was nothing else for them to go into work-wise. Um, so that created a bit of a weird blip in the UK's history. And you'd think we would want to avoid repeating that for other nations. Right at the start, we were talking about the rise of the electric cars and how there are more cars on the road than there used to be in general, uh, and how people seem so reliant on their car rather than alternative means of transport. So if we're thinking about reducing our reliance on lithium extraction and these resources in general, can we imagine a world where maybe public transport actually works for us and we don't have to spend three hours switching about five different trains just to do what would take two hours in a car. I guess we all need to live in, in very highly populated cities for that to be the most easy way to get around places because that's where typically the best public transport is I've found like in rural areas often the the transport isn't that great and it's really difficult to get to remote places whereas if people are sharing cars or you know living in places that it's more well connected there's more stops on the bus or there's more you know places that the trains go to then that's possible but for remote rural areas is that really possible I don't know but I think that's the only way that we could reduce the cars on the road right if we live in areas that are well serviced by public transport. I think a couple of years ago we were talking about how there's a huge global um, urbanization that people are leaving rural places and going into cities but you know in some countries where they have this hyper urbanization, 
they're not using public transport because they're the new of a rich and they all want their cars, they want that independence. Kind of like back in the late 1800s when there was an electric car option, but it was slow and it wasn't easy to charge. And now we get back to here again. <laughs> so maybe it's, it's, you know, that cultural shift as well. Of If you are moving to cities, you also think about how to change and adapt. That's a, a bit of a theme for some of the podcast episodes we've done so far, that none of what we're talking about is ever black and white. It always gets really complicated and it's not just the science and the engineering. It also gets tied up in politics and uh, social considerations as well and economics. And I feel like that means we've deviated so far off topic from our technical discussion that that might be quite a good place to draw the conversation to a close. So having started off with a very factual discussion about how many cars are on the road, how electric cars have uh, increased in ownership in recent years and how it's not even new technology and some of the resources required to make that rise in, I want to say rise in machines. Both of it, Laura. <laughs> We're great at making obscure references in this podcast. That's what we do best. I mean, it is the rise of the machine, really, Once they it? all become self-driving as well. Very iRobot. Another obscure movie reference. That's not that obscure. Oh, or maybe it is for, for you know, it being how many years ago now. Oh, don't, don't say, Antonia, how many years ago it was. It uh, feels like yesterday. It was yesterday. To some of us yeah. who have like, not been awake for the last few decades. Yeah, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks for listening. And find us on Twitter if you want to carry on this very random conversation. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.